everyone, and welcome to The Blind Spot. I am so excited because we are doing our first couple interview. And today I have with me Karen Burley and Sebastian Busby, and I'm going to give them each a chance to introduce themselves. I know that Karen is also an Enneagram teacher, trained in the narrative tradition, has her own coaching practice, and we will have in the show notes ways to get in touch with her. She also has her own podcast that I'll let her tell us about. But I feel really grateful that she's willing to be here and explore these issues with me. And I don't know as much about Sebastian, so I'm going to pause here. And whoever would like to introduce themselves further first, go ahead. I'd like to hear from both of you. And what I'd also love hearing is a little bit about how you came to know your type. Um, when did you discover it? And how did you come to know your instinctual stack? So that's where I'd like to start if either one of you are willing to kick us off. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, I love being <laughs> introduced by a three. I'm like, whoa, I sound so accomplished. Um, yeah, my name's Karen. And so I lead with type nine with a one wing. And then um, my I'm I'm newer to the tri-type thing, uh, tri-fix thing, but it's, I would say, 962. Um, and then I see sexual and then social with self-pressed blind for my instincts. Well, when did you, how long have you been working with the Enneagram? And did you know that you were a nine right away when you read the description or did you have to find your way there? Anything you want to share about that? Yeah. So my former sister-in-law um, at a family vacation was like, you're a six. And I was like, what? And, you know, she named, she, she was interested. And I remember I looked it up. This is probably in 2014. And I looked it up, um, didn't know what to do with it. It was like, okay. I sent it to Sebastian. We hadn't been together that long at the time. He found his type immediately. Um, and I'll, I'll let him share about whatever he remembers. But I didn't think about it again for like three more years. And then I was in therapy. Um, I was getting my master's in social work, started seeing a therapist. And it was one of our early sessions I was listening to a podcast and the guest was saying, there's this thing with Enneagram. I use it with my therapist. It's so helpful. Um, and, you know, talking a little and I go in, pause the podcast, go into therapy and if a little while in my therapist is like, you know, I use this tool sometimes if you're interested. And I was like, great. Yes, it's it's up for me. I think someone told me I was a six once. Um, and we she went through just kind of reading some descriptors and started with two I said something about six and then she read the nine. And of course, right before that, I was like, this thing isn't going to help. It's, you know, I had thought about Myers-Briggs in college or whatever. I, I, I never quite felt like it got anywhere, and, but I was wanted to know what was going on with me. I'm like in therapy, like kind of about to go into the world and have to be someone, um, which is when I have my biggest breakdowns <laughs> I've learned. Um, and she just started reading about the nine and I, I, felt it. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's what's happening. Yeah. And I love that you named um, that trifix, I think can be helpful. Catherine Fav was interviewed and I heard her say that sometimes we find our way to our type through our trifix, because sometimes we actually will identify with points that are in our trifix before we land on our ultimate type. So when people read trifix descriptions, sometimes that will resonate a little bit more and that that can give us a good way to 
find our way home to true type. And as I heard you talk about your therapist reading things about two and somebody thought you were a six and then you're like, ah, it's a nine. So yeah, how does that land for you? It's fine. I've told that story before and I didn't ever think about two and six being the other ones. And those are, you know, definitely present. Um, I was like, well, yeah, I'm a nine. I have that line to six. And also, you know, um, two-ishness can look like nine-ishness. So I was like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. But it is funny because I, I do, I mean, I do feel those energies in me. And so it's funny that other people in my nine-ness that has a lot going on, but doesn't always show it or doesn't really know how to let myself be seen unless someone's very interested in seeing me, um, which fortunately I have a partner who is, and that has been a huge, honestly, so um, permission giving for me to look more deeply at myself. Um, it's it's interesting to have those reflections. Um, but I, yeah, it was also interesting that I've I didn't know anyone else who knew the Enneagram really. So I didn't have a lot of the stereotype stuff in my head or like, well, I can't be this because of that, which I see a lot now. Like, oh, well, this person's a nine. So I can't be like, I'm not like that. I actually see that more in me now where I'm like, that person's my same type. Like, whoa, we're so different. And then just learning as I um, studied the Enneagram more. So that's about five years ago. And I've been pretty deep diving in for the last few years, uh, I can, I see a lot more of the nuances of the structure and how it shows up and learning to work with it. It's been a whole thing. Well, and I just want to name that you were one of the first people that I saw in our shift class that we did together, like your posts on Facebook. And I actually reached out to you and you were one of the first people I spoke with live. And so it just feels really sweet that you're also the first person that I'm interviewing here for our couples. So uh, yeah, I think that it's such a beautiful example of how a healthy nine is seen. It's like, we see you and so many people are reaching out and wanting to connect with you. And I just think it's so beautiful. And I really hope that you just keep showing up because those nines that aren't showing up, we're missing so much. So I just have a lot of gratitude for the work you're doing and what you bring to our community. Thanks so much. Yeah, the, the podcast. So my podcast is called Enneagram Typecast with another narrative teacher. And that's been a huge lesson to me. I would I hated my voice on recordings and you know, all, just showing up felt so like something I just didn't want to do. And now I'm like, oh, wow, I have a lot to say and I want to. I want to show people through example. And I, it's so important to me to be doing my work as I share it. Um, and so I want Sebastian to introduce himself. And then I'm happy to talk more about the instinctual stacks because I know that's part of what we're here for. <laughs> yeah. So Sebastian, why don't you talk about how you found your way to type? And then we can bounce back to Karen on how she found her way to stack. And then we can start with some of our couple questions if you guys are willing. Yeah, great. Um, well, just to start, uh, I identify as a type three with a four wing, um, self-preservation dominant, then social and sexual. Um, I'm Karen's partner and soon to be husband. Uh, unlike Karen, I am not an Enneagram expert, uh, but I've learned a lot of wisdom from her throughout the years as she's uh, studied it. Um, and I, I think uh, sort of when it hit me that I was a three, uh, it was early on in our relationship. I think she had bought a few Enneagram books and, you know, I had kind of been paging through them and uh, just reading through sort of the um, core motivations and, and fears and longings of the three. It just sort of immediately resonated with me, primarily in that 
um, thinking about sort of having no value unless you're producing value for other people, just having no intrinsic value and really feeling that my entire life. I think, you know, other attributes of the three certainly resonated, but those core pieces were just like, oof, there it is. Yeah, it's that. Yeah, absolutely. What kind of work do you do, Sebastian? Yeah, um, I'm a forest and fire ecologist, uh, a, a researcher. So uh, I study and think about natural, the natural world quite a bit and uh, am, am less involved in the human world, I think, yeah, <laughs> at least yeah. philosophically. And do you want to share with us, maybe we'll start with you, Sebastian, and then bounce back to Karen. Um, how did you learn about your instinctual stack and how does that show up for you and why have you landed that with the one you have? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think uh, most folks who know me pretty well, would, it would be fairly obvious that I'm self-preservation uh, dominant, for sure. Uh, very introverted, very sort of focused on myself, my surrounding, having a cozy surrounding, my time, very focused on having time and spaciousness. Yeah, I guess that focus on myself and and time and spaciousness is huge yeah, for me. Yeah, and our and our home environment. Yeah, certainly, certainly having skills that sort of contribute to that sort of sphere of influence. That's just like my immediate surroundings. I think. Yeah. So you really enjoy putting a lot of time and energy into creating a beautiful domestic life for you and yes. Karen? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I am definitely the uh, the domestic one in our relationship, 100%. I what are some of the most... things you've done? What are you most proud of? Or Karen, do you want to brag or can Sebastian brag? Is he enough three that he can go ahead and highlight himself? <laughs> he likes when I brag about him, but I try I to do. get him to brag I, about I, himself. I think, I think as a type three with a four wing, like I generally don't like to be too showy. Uh, so it's always really nice when Karen just gets to be showy for me. <laughs> gets yeah. to communicate that. Well, they sometimes say that the self-preservation three is vain about not being vain. And so maybe that's showing up a little bit in that regard. What do you think? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Yeah, but I'll, I'm happy to jump in. I mean, Sebastian's one of those people who kind of has a survival or like an apocalypse fantasy because he's so good at in the moment resourcing himself and seeing like pathways and knowing what's available, what's around. And so um, I was listening to an early uh, earlier episode and you're talking about this a little bit and he's very that way. Um, where I feel really safe <laughs> because he's like, he knows what food is in the fridge. He knows how much leftover wood our previous homeowner left for us so he can do projects. He and his dad literally built their house and he's doing construction on our, our house in a little ways um, and always improving things, but in this very practical, very resourceful, very efficient way that is just like incredible to me where I see my self-preservation instinct as last and I have none of those skills and I I won't even think about it like I will not want to think about it and he just is like he knows what time of day it is without a watch like he just has this like rhythmic sense about how the about the world around him yeah. immediately around him yeah and um one of the things that I want to do on this podcast because we're all coming in having learned, well, those of us that are studying the Enneagram, having learned from so many different teachers about what 
is self-preservation instinct? What is social? What is sexual? So when I think that something comes up that could be confusing, I'm going to go ahead and like push and question a little bit about things that are said simply because I want to open up dialogue. And so in the show notes, people will see that if you have a comment or a question, I'm fielding emails that are bringing up, yes, I agree with what you said, or I disagree with what you said, and this is why. And I really want want this to be a podcast platform where we unpack what these instincts actually are in the nuances that exist. Because one of the things that I think happens sometimes is we get a little attached to defining it. And I think we're still discovering that. So is it okay, Sebastian, if I just reflect also as a self-preservation three, but with a two wing, um, what I'd love to hear is what I connect with and what I don't connect with just because I want to put into the space what these different observations are that we're making about ourselves, where we might house them if people feel like, yeah, I kind of think I'm self-preservation dominant and I connect with this that Sebastian said, but maybe not that. Is it okay if I, I just kind of explore it a little bit with you? Yeah, tease it out. Okay, cool. Um, first, did you share your trifix? Do you guys have an idea of what it is? Truly, I ha- I don't understand trifixes at all. Okay, yeah. <laughs> my so my guess my guess for him yeah is just it'd probably be three nine five. Okay, definitely more withdrawing and definitely um I don't know that's what I see a bit. Yeah, yeah. Sebastian, do you mind if I talk about you even though I don't know you and just say what I know about nine three five just for our audience who is also learning trifix and then um, you know and I also like to reference. Um, I do think that Big Hormone Enneagram does a great job with Trifix, and they have their roast um, that I think one is called the Flatline, isn't it? Is that what that Trifix is called? That sounds familiar. <laughs> and they, they say that mainly because if you look at five, which is a withdrawn type, and if you look at nine, which is a withdrawn type, and you put it with three, which can be disconnected from the heart sometimes that when you're talking to a 359 or 395, you don't always sense as much emotionality as somebody with a different trifix. Does that resonate? Yeah, I think so. I think I, I tend to be pretty five-like in a lot of ways, um, just in being pretty self-contained, um, yeah, I, I I do get excited about things and can show emotionality, but I think there's like a, it takes a bit of effort to get into that realm or that territory. Yeah. I also want to name that if you have a four wing, that's also withdrawn. So you've got like three withdrawn energies <laughs> that actually seems like maybe it's balancing out your assertive type, which is the core type of three. So I'm naming this just simply because two threes can look really different. Like I have no withdrawn energy in my stack whatsoever. My fix is three, seven, one. So it's like double assertive with that moralism, you know, which with a two wing, which adds that little invasive quality. So when I just look at the way you're holding yourself, Sebastian, even the, um, there's a sense of like composure. And I think there's something about the, nine and the five, the nine adds the smoothness and the five adds like the technical expertise and that ability to be pretty like uh, an expert in certain things, I would say. Is that resonating with you? Yeah. I mean, truly like the most satisfying 
sort of thing to me is to be an expert in something and have people come to me and be like, hey, we have this question or I don't understand how this works. And I can just be like, here, let me line it out for you. Like that's such a gratifying feeling. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And do you know your Myers-Briggs type? I'm curious. Oof. um, I don't remember it offhand. I do remember it feeling really accurate. It was Uh like... Do you know, Karen, what he is? What is he? I think he's an INTJ. Okay. So I just want to name that I'm a three that's an ENFP. Okay. So once again, the way our cognitive functions overlay type structure can also give it a very different feel. So one of the things that you named that I just want to, here's my one fix. I want to correct it because in my opinion, I think that self-preservation people being identified as more reserved is not actually my experience of the self-preservation instinct. Um, I think that when you have a four wing or when you have other fixes that are withdrawn types or when your Myers-Briggs is an I, that you may be more likely to show some of those self-preservation characteristics. But I think you can be self-preservation and not withdrawn or introverted. How's that land with you, Karen? What do you think as another Enneagram teacher? Yeah, it's interesting. I um, think that there's just so many varieties and so many uh, influences on that. Also, Sebastian was an only child and learned pretty early on to entertain himself and for other reasons as well. Like there's just so many factors. It's interesting to tease it apart and it's hard to say in a single person, like, what is influencing your energy? But with him in general, he's very grounded. There's a lot of earthiness to him. And like, um, but there's also a lot of warmth and a lot of uh, like hearing you on a work Zoom call or like seeing with uh, you with close friends is like very different than entering a new social situation because you're just receiving on different levels. And I see the three in that a lot. Yeah. Okay. The thing that I'll name about my, um, because you should not be with me in a zombie apocalypse, like for sure. Like I would not have, I'm more like Karen, you know, and I actually really enjoy it when I have partners or friends who feel prepared because that is one reason that I wasn't so sure I was self-preservation dominant, but I've actually used my social instinct to meet those self-preservation needs for me. So I tend to surround myself with people that fill in that those gaps. And one of the things John told me was that the very fact that I am aware of it, that I'm like very scared about, oh, if something happens like the zombie apocalypse, who do I want to call? Like that's in my mind. Like I definitely think about that a lot. For me, I meet my self-preservation needs much more um, around like health and well-being and, you know, being a physician and sp- a specialty in obesity. You know, I really care a lot about nutrition and exercise and those sort of self-preservation zones are really dominant for me, um, as well as uh, financial security. Like it's really scary for me to do work that doesn't have an obvious you know, payout associated with it. You know, being a doctor is very safe in a self-preservation way. You'll always have a job and you can always make money. Uh, You know, trying to be a coach, you know, that can very much fluctuate. So there is like a lot that really comes up against my self-preservation instinct. So do you resonate with those around like self-care with the body and 
around money, Sebastian, as a self-preservation three? Are those things you think about? Yeah, absolutely. I'm like very aware of my body at most times and what it needs. And, um, you know, I'm often very drained by people in, in social situations and, you know, will feel that in my body. And it kind of gives me those signals uh, with financial territory as well. I'm, I'm very aware of that, pretty conservative around, you know, having plenty of resources. I think it's interesting you talked about how, um, the way that your self-preservation kind of shows up is that you'll sort of resource out other people who have skills. And for myself, I think, especially the way that I grew up, I didn't feel like I could rely on other people who had skills or they would show up if I needed them to. And so my sort of manifestation of the skills is like taking them on myself and having the the skills I need to sort of show up and perform well in, in any situation myself from a survival standpoint. Yeah. And are you putting social as your middle instinct because you just can do that three thing as well as the social instinct thing of going into a lot of different social situations and it doesn't cause you a lot of stress? You just kind of know how to show up or why do you have social in your middle and not dominant or blind? Yeah. I mean, I I think it's something I'm definitely aware of. I'm pretty aware of social graces and I'll be pretty aware of like when, um, you know, someone is having some sort of conversation and something's not going well or someone needs something. And like, you know, part of me wants to sort of prod people in a different direction in order to sort of reach that social resolution or that social harmony. But for me personally, it's like not that important to meet those objectives or like maintain the social harmony. It's just something that I'm like decently aware of, I would say. Well, and I love that you named that thing in our structure where that impulse to prod people along in the social situation to create harmony and make it better. Like I really resonate with that. Um, It's, but I'm curious from the nine perspective, Karen, I know that nines love harmony, but you tend not to, like it has a very different energetic flavor to it. How do you and Sebastian both meet needs for harmony? Like what might you do that's different from what Sebastian might do? Well, so we grew up really differently also. And we when we go to parties or something, I'm way more outgoing. I'm way more like scanning the room. Where, who can I talk to? Make an eye contact. You know, I see the sexual instinct like fire in me really immediately. Um, and if I, if I don't get that, if there's, if it's a casual, mellow, low-key party, I'm not interested. And I think like, I see a lot of nines feel like really comfortable in like a group of friends who just, and I'm like, no, I want something to be lighting me up. And so he will like kind of pull me back when I'm like firing too hot or I get going and I'm really chatty and I am like, let's take it there. Let me like tell you about this. He, and you know, we've been together long enough that it has become less verbal. And he has taught me a lot about nonverbal communication, um, which was foreign to me uh, before that. But he'll just guide me back um, toward kind of like, hey, that person's not interested as much as you're interested right now. Um, And so he'll like, and I see Sebastian like is actually very skilled at subverting while maintaining that um the groundedness so he'll be like well maybe it's actually like this if someone's kind of going off in a direction that doesn't 
feel right to him. He'll kind of be like, well, what about that? Or it's just, just like a lot of tact around it. Whereas for me, if I have to, um, my energy, I think is very calming and I feel very welcoming to people and I'm very affirming of like them, which can get confused with being affirming of what they're saying. And I have to be careful about that, that I'm not just nodding and smiling. I'm nodding and smiling because I'm receiving them as opposed to because I'm agreeing with them. But unless I care about it or it feels important or, you know, there's something juicy there, I might not let it show. I might not actively bring them back. (laughs) Whereas Sebastian's a little more like, if he sees a way in and he's pretty effective and efficient at seeing like a connection point and bringing up a different point and knowing about enough things that he can bring something in that would make sense to them. Um, I just, I see the skillfulness in that. Whereas I get so ungrounded and I see myself pres as last and I'm just like off and I'm, and I'm trying to relate on some like ethereal level or like go somewhere intellectually almost or spiritually or I don't know exactly what's happening there's heat to it and it's like I I don't want to come down and so he will actually like touch me ground me in some way to be like hey it's okay if that person doesn't want to go there like you can just be with them where they're at Mm, thank you and I love how we just kind of shifted over Karen to how you know that sexual is your dominant is there anything else that led you to knowing you were sexual dominant besides this um you know what you just described of how you are at a party or walking the room or what kind of conversations, anything more you want to say about that? And if yes, let's hear it. And if no, I'd also like to hear how do you know social is your middle? Yeah, I don't, maybe Sebastian can speak to this in me. It's hard to see myself sometimes, but when I learned about it, I did kind of learn the one-to-one, like, oh, you like one-on-one conversations. And I was like, yeah, totally. Um, But then getting deeper into what the instinct really is, just having awareness, like shameful awareness of my teenage years of like, oh, I'm constantly like eyes open. Are we like, would could we like each other? Could we connect? Could there be attraction here? And getting, not knowing why people found me to be like so flirty. And so like, I, did, I feel like I was, um, I felt, I felt very like unattractive, um, and and was very worried about it like all the time I didn't feel like I knew how to manage my curly hair and I didn't know how to like present myself in a certain way but anytime a new person came in it was like what about you are you someone who's going to see something in me that and you're going to like me for how I am and to feel my starting to notice as I learn more about that instinct that that way of trying to hook somebody but doing it from this nine-ish way of like, and once you're interested, I'll just be whatever you want. Like mm-hmm. once you see me and we, there's some channel between us, like I want to hear what you're interested in and I'll relate to you in these ways and those ways. So it's interesting that like initial hook, but then kind of being scared of being too much or like coming on too strong and wanting to just fuse and merge. I, I see that in this intense way. And seeing it like way back when, like 
in preschool, I had a crush on a boy and I was aware of it. Like I, and, and all through elementary, like if I didn't have a crush on somebody, if I didn't want to be near someone and getting their attention and having them see me, like school felt like pointless. And I was like a good student or whatever, but it was like, I need that or else life is meaningless. And this deep fear I heard, you know, of not being attractive, like not being able to have someone want to see all of me and want to be, and be drawn to me was like this major fear. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that John was teaching me about the sexual instinct is that, you know, people have like a very distinct flavor and you're kind of projecting that flavor, looking for either the match or like the repel. And I'm just curious in your experience when you meet people, because I think that sexual nines are particularly interesting of all the sexual dominant types, like the sexual nine, I think the sexual instinct shows up so differently in all the different types. And I just think in the sexual nine, I've had a little bit of a harder time wrapping my brain around it because we've talked about how the sexual instinct is not actually nice. It's very competitive. It actually wants to kind of kill off all the other competition. And it's just really hard to see that in a nine. And when you hear me say that, I guess I'm curious, you know, can you show show us your like competitive, mean sexual side in any way? Yeah, I mean, I have a hard time being mean. And I also grew up in a family that felt very socially dominant. And so I was aware of that as well. And And when you were talking about getting certain needs met for yourself pressed through your social. I I felt I learned if I'm socially palatable, maybe people will be more likely to desire me. So I have to watch that. Um I and so it, it does feel like the nine is intention with and I think Mario Sakura said he names the sexual nine as the counter type if it, as opposed to social nine that normally gets talked about. And I get that. But like, for me, I some of it's internal, like watching like a dating show or something. And internally, I'll be like, just for just because of who I am, like they would want me, like if I'm in a good place, I'd be like, they would just be drawn to me, I would get them at these people are stupid, these people are boring, you know, whatever. But then on the flip side of that being like, what if being very aware, if the attraction isn't there, I don't want to force it and I can't force it. And it doesn't like, I remember in elementary school thinking when two people had a crush on each other, like, you know, you're kind of aware, like, oh, these people have crush. It's like, you'll have a crush on him or whatever. I was very aware of that. To, to imagine two people having a crush on each other reciprocally felt like such luck because it feels so automatically you can't decide who you have a crush on it's just there and it's in your face and it rules your whole life and you can't think about anything else right and to learn later on like people are prioritizing other things then that was very confusing and actually with Sebastian we didn't that isn't how our relationship started at all and it's still like learning this language has been helpful because um he does maybe he can speak to it, but like he is drawn to me, but not for any of the reasons that I think I would be desirable. 
I think if I'm good at sports or really smart or like um, funny in a really particular way that I grew up thinking was the best way to be funny, that those are go- like those are the things I've latched on to to be like that is attractive and cool and still chill enough, but like interesting enough. And he doesn't care about any of that. And it's very confusing to me. What is it that you're drawn to, Sebastian? What do you care about? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's like her unconditional love, her warmth, um, the fact that like she loves me without any kind of, condi- I guess it's unconditional, but just expectations or, um, you know, she's just super safe and warm and sweet. And uh, I know that I can always, you know, show up with her and, and she'll meet me wherever I'm at and without, you know, fear of judgment or expectations around performance. And, you know, for, for a, a three who goes through life feeling like they have to constantly perform and do something in order to receive love, to be able to just unconditionally receive that is really powerful for me. Yeah. And when you say kind of the dark side of the sexual instinct, I catch myself because I make a point to tell him like, you know, you could do nothing and I would still love you. And we're, you know, every few years in our relationship, I feel like we're, we go deeper and deeper, but there is part of me that's like, he is really attractive and he does stuff well, and he takes care of me well. And there's almost like this part of me that's like, because he's so good at those things and, you know, maybe that's reinforcing his type or whatever. It allows me like, I, I am aware of that. Like I pay attention to like, not only do I find him attractive, people find him, he's an attractive person. And because I have that, there's some part of me that's like, and he wants me, like, I want to show everyone and I want to show him off. And he's not bothered by that, (laughs) which is really really nice. (laughs) (laughs) Do you get jealous, Karen? Do you have jealousy? No, that's the, because he's sexual blind. And he is not at all coming across, he's, you know, nice to look at and really, really sweet, but he's not coming across with that energy. It's funny because, and he's not jealous of me either, which I also think is fascinating and helpful because I am really flirty. People do, he'll tell me like the level that you want to go with people you just met, they might have one or two people in their whole lives who they allow in that far. And you have to be careful about that. Like not everyone wants that from you, but even if I'm out doing that with many different people, there's a security that we have where he lets me go have fun and stay out sometimes. No trusting that it's not about, it's not going to be a connection like we have, but then I feel like if he were to do that, I don't know that I would love that. And so I'm grateful that that's not a true need for him or it doesn't seem to be. So it's nice that he's introverted and he likes to stay home so that you don't have to worry about him being out running around and getting too much attention. But I love, he. most of his friends are women and I really do, they love him, they adore him. They have such sweet relationships and I love that for him. I love seeing the funny, silly side that comes out in him in a playful way. I, I don't know, I don't feel threatened by it, but I think if he were dripping in more sexual energy, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't want that that much. Yeah. It'd be something I'd have to work on. Do you see Karen (laughs) dripping in sexual energy? Yeah, I mean, certainly in the right environment. um, It's, you know, it's just like this intensity that comes out, this intensity and focus that like 
it like latches onto someone and it's like, I got you. Now I'm going to like shake all the goodness out of you. Like whether I have your consent or not. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Ouch. So, so Sebastian, yeah, this, this should be a little painful, right? If, you know, if it doesn't hurt a little bit. Yeah. yeah. We, we're not being honest. But he had to tell me what I would, I would, we both physical touch is important to both of us, which is also, and we, we don't mind PDA, which is also freeing. Like we just can touch each other if we want to. And I would always go over, you often go over to him. I'm like, oh, can I sit on your lap and just snuggle? And he had to point out to me that I would, once we had that sweet connection, I would stay on his lap and start talking to him about something that he, in his mind, he did not give consent for. But I'm like, oh, but now we're connected. So let's get into it. And he would, he has to be like, you're trapping me. Like, this is whatever you're trying to get out of me, like, stop. So you were (laughs) feeling the self-pres boundary come up. Yeah. 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 Feeling like I, you know, I, in this moment have limited energy or my focus is elsewhere. And you've kind of just inserted yourself in here and latched on to kind of get what you need without my consent. Yeah. So it's like, I'm consenting to the physical touch, but not your uh, sexual gaze and diving into my heart, soul and mind in this moment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. So, okay. So, and I'm just like, I like to tease people a little bit when I'm hearing Karen talk about you. She's basically like, okay, so um, I love the fact that Sebastian's sexual blind because he just doesn't have game when it comes to going out and cruising for women. (laughs) I really don't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You're just kind of like, yeah. How'd you find Karen? Like, how did you know that she's your person? Well, I mean, it, it definitely wasn't like love at first sight for either of us. I think we both had really different ideas of what an ideal partner was going to be like for us. You know, and we met in our early twenties. So we were also uh, pretty young and learning a lot about ourselves. Um, But I, I think, you know, through a lot of hard work and time, we kind of came to the realization that we had a ton to learn from each other and sort of had each other to sort of help fill in and educate each other on our, our blind spots or, you know, areas that we could improve in. And I think that's like one of the most beautiful parts of our relationships is just how different we are, but how those differences sort of help teach each other new skills and, and help balance us out. So what are you learning from Karen about working with your blind spot? How are you working with your sexual blind spot? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, how am I working with my blind spot? <laughs> Can I tell a story? Yeah, please. Well, he, so, you know, we're now in our thirties, we're getting married. Like we have, a, we have a lot of stability. Um, and Sebastian struggles to like have fun, like play, like stop working. And he do, he does like projects for fun, but it's not like play. Um, and so I'm like, always like, so he sends me to the grocery store to get a fun dessert or something different. He buys the staples. He finds, he knows how much things cost. He gets the deals, like all the, all this stuff. And, and that's like a lifestyle thing uh, of kind of frugality or like very like, you know, we're comfortable, but we don't need to push it and, and be living some lifestyle we can't keep up with is very important to him. And so he comes home from the grocery store one day a few months ago and he's like, you'd be so proud of me. I I really splurged. Like I really like tried to like harness some of this energy. And I was like, oh, I'm all excited. Like, what did you do? What'd you get? 
and you got like what some some salami or something some like expensive salami like an, one expensive stick of salami for like cheese and crackers Woo-hoo! and uh it, yeah, it, it sounds pitiful but it was like <laughs> sitting there in the grocery aisle just being like oh this part of me like pulling away and then I was like no I'm gonna have it <laughs> That's awesome. Now, I'm kind of resonating as a sexual blind as well. Um, For me, it manifests in shopping. So I will usually shop at Kohl's with a 30% off coupon and, you know, just have never spent more than like $50 on a purse. And these things sort of are anti three, except for I'm sort of vain about being frugal, you know, because that's a value in my family that, you know, is why I drive cars for 12 years. And, you know, it's just part of what I'm vain about. But part of just letting that sexual instinct will be like going into Nordstrom's and just I bought like a $500 red dress I had nowhere to go with, you know, that I just put on and I just loved and I just got it. And yeah, it's kind of liberating and it feels good. And it's kind of terrifying because I then am plagued with all the ideas of what I could have done with that $500. But, you know, that's sort of an expression, I think, for the sexual blind. Whereas if you're sexual dominant and you're self-pres blind Karen what might that look like for you well and with Sebastian too he researches and finds the nice things he does want makes sure he has enough resources for them and then buys them and then takes really really good care of them and I do like nice expensive things (laughs) but only like the like his car and and it's not like a showy car it's just a very functional good car um and like you know certain outdoorsy things or whatever for for me, and this is also part of how I grew up, I think it's like, well, I can have whatever I want. Um, I still do, like, I do, mo- most of my clothes are hand-me-downs or, like, thrift stores or uh, we live in Portland. There's a lot of, like, clothing swaps, like, reuse items. So clothes aren't that big of a deal to me. But if there is, you know, an Enneagram training Um, or like something that I'm just like, I want this and I don't really stop to be like, do I have the energy? Do I have time? Like I'll look and make sure I have enough money, but it's not like, you know, more as I've started my own business, thinking about that a little bit more. And as I've run out of money for the first time in my life, that has been a thing. So that's, it's interesting to watch that, but there is this sense of like, if I really want it, it would be really hard to not have it. And I'm trying to, I don't know, we have, so we have a shared account, but we also have separate bank accounts just because we don't want to have to explain to the other, like, we know we have differences in this arena and we talk about how we spend our shared money. And we talk, you know, we've gone through iterations with that, that I'm sure we'll keep iterating, but to just be like, yeah, yeah. I'll spend like 20 bucks on like five different things that maybe I will use, maybe I won't, but because it was an exciting thing to get to do and treat myself or whatever, um, that will just happen if I'm not actively paying attention to like, do I need this? Is this the right time for this? Those kinds of things. Yeah. So Sebastian, how are you helping Karen to work with her self-preservation blind spot? (laughs) What, what's her edge there that you see her working and you're supporting her in? Yeah, I mean, um, I think certainly in sort of the more like menial 
domestic pursuits uh, is a, is a potential area of growth. And um, I think I think <laughs> he's giving like, me chores. <laughs> yeah, giving her chores, and um, I think in in a way, like with certain things, especially if it's like okay this is your responsibility. Like I actually will commit to not doing it because I, you know, as sort of the, the super domestic person, I will kind of just steamroll it if it doesn't get done immediately, because it, in order to sort of feel um, at peace, like having a messy house is like very hazardous to my uh, being. And so eventually I'm just going to like do it in order to feel better, but I have to actually sit back and let it stay messy and let her show up and, and do the thing. So, I mean, I, I think probably the, the way that I've been helping is actually like doing less and just being like, okay, this is your responsibility. Um, you know, it's it's up to you when you get it done. And I'm just going to sit back. Hey, Karen, what's your Myers-Briggs? We talked about Sebastian's. I think I'm an ENFP. Yeah. So I want to name that one of the things you guys are talking about is a J versus P difference. I do a lot of my Myers-Briggs learning with personality hackers. If people are wanting to hear more about this, they have some great podcasts and curriculum. And the thing that I learned most recently from them about the J function and the P function is that J's need a lot of order in their external world so that they can have freedom in their internal world. Whereas P's have a lot of order in their internal world so that they can have freedom in the external world. So that was really like mind blowing for me as I just start to look at these differences that we may sometimes ascribe to type, but also may live in our cognitive functions. So it is true that most ones are J's, it's unusual to find a one that, that's not a J, but I hope I interview one. I would love to hear what a one that leads with P would look like. Similarly, like sevens are much more likely to be P's than J's. So as we think about the Enneagram, um, we can think about these different things. There's also a great interview with Jerome Wagner, who is an expert in Myers-Briggs, as well as one of the original Enneagram teachers. And I was recently listening to his podcast, and it was interesting to me to learn that most threes are TJ. So Sebastian, you know, you're fitting that mold, but as a three who's an ENFP, it's interesting to realize that cognitive function just simply provides another overlay. And when we're looking at type structure, the way that I know that I'm a three is because I'm absolutely an image type and so many more of the the passions and the fixations of point three are things that I know are in my shadow and also the virtues and the holy ideas are things that when I'm in great places, I can kind of vibrate with those concepts and really, really feel that gift that lives inside of me. So that was interesting as I heard you describe that. Yeah. That's really interesting. I'm just kind of trying to take in this idea of messiness on the outside order on the inside for me and it's landing. I definitely very messy on the outside and I tend to think of myself as messy on the inside, but there is like, I didn't see not only my anger, but the control stuff of the body center in myself for, for a while. I was like, I'm not controlling go with the flow. You know, my nine really wanted me to see that in myself 
but to see how hard it is for me to actually let go internally, like I'll throw things all over the floor and I won't, you know, have tidy things outside of me. And, uh, you know, occasionally it feels nice to tidy up and I try to be more responsible for the shared spaces and, and things like that. Cause I know Sebastian prefers that, um, work in progress, but on the inside, I do feel very, I have a hard time letting like my creativity flow or the playfulness like flow. Like it feels like I'm trying really hard without much success to strategize something. Or, you know, one of the things we talk about with self-preservation is this foundation piece. And I often feel like I'm lacking a foundation. And so there's this kind of inner project of trying to like set my foundation over and over and over again. And I watch Sebastian receive new information. He's really confident in his foundations. He'll take it and do something with it. Whereas I feel like I'm being handed a brick and I have to put it at the bottom of my foundation of whatever that topic is. And then I'm like, I should write it all down in order. So it's there and it doesn't actually work for me. Um, and it's really exhausting, <laughs> but it's interesting to hear you say like that part of me, that's like trying to be really orderly internally and also, but I don't care to look that orderly on the outside. Yeah. Yeah. And I really think you're speaking also to the self-preservation blind in what you just shared, because the self-preservation instinct is what gives us the foundation from which we can grow. And I think when we're blind in self-preservation, it can show up in these, um, you know, domestic ways or in financial ways or in self-care ways or just in the awareness of the body. Um, but I also think that there could be some more challenge around growth and developing whatever it is we want to grow and develop. So I think even what you're building, Karen, sounds like blind spot work in some way. How does that feel? Absolutely. It's become pretty clear to me um, in order, you know, I quit my job and was like, okay, I'm, I'm doing Enneagram stuff now. Um, and to have to face on a day-to-day basis, what that means about Nobody is giving me a schedule. Nobody is paying me unless I set myself up for, with projects and clients. Nobody is making sure I know how to file my business taxes. Like that stuff brings up a lot of existential angst because I want to follow that thing that I'm drawn toward. And I, it does not feel okay to not do that, to not follow the juicy, you know, thing. And yet my actual skill set in sitting down, planning my week, following up with my people that say they want to work with me, I'm producing the podcast, like I'm actually finding how much I've tried to, well, how much that prevented me from doing this in the first place. And then I was like, this is my work. Okay, good. I need to be doing my work in order to do work with others. But then how, how, really difficult it is to just keep my attention on those things long enough to like, I have like a five minute morning routine and to, I I don't think I did it today. Like, it's just like, and I've done it most days. It's just this real, really takes concentration 
And I think you're speaking to type structure too, because as a nine, that tendency to self forget, like what is really important to me, what do I need to be focusing on to help myself grow and develop and build? I would imagine if you're a self-preservation blind nine, there could be some extra challenge there. Yeah, and actually, I was really touched by the episode you did on the Gurdjieff lines. Um, And, you know, we were in that class together. But to hear John's perspective and to hear it recently, you know, this idea that the work in an idyllic way can be for the work itself. Um, Obviously, we don't just jump there. We've got to, like, do the practices and be with each other and, like, all those pieces. But there's something that landed in me when I heard you talking about that just the other day and I was listening that was like, oh, um, can I use my sexual instinct that wants to transcend and wants there to be like a evolution in the world to not attach it so much to the material things that I'm trying to build or do, but to see the work itself as what my contribution is. And then to, and I've, I've witnessed it when I'm doing, when I'm actually doing my work and not just sitting around thinking about what my work is or telling other people about what their work might be. It's like almost immediately reflected in my life and my business, which I is not an expectation, but it's just something I notice. And I'm like, wow, this really is bigger than learning how to cook a certain meal (laughs) week after week, which is also a practice I've done that is very, really helpful because it's, it's playing with the same things. Like, and I want to make it not necessary for me to have the routines. And yet by watching myself try to hold on to my routines, all of that shows up and I have to face it and sit with it and be like, turns out you're in this dimension in this world. And you do need to like make sure your business is paying your personal account if you want to be able to pay your credit card. Like that is something I have to do every month and or, or put the dishes away so that my relationship feels like there's some amount of reciprocity, even though we bring different things and value each other in different ways. It's like, it's constantly amazing. And actually this is something that Sebastian has really helped me with was I would be so embarrassed and so ashamed of the ways of the things I feel like I should already know and maybe didn't learn around how to take care of myself in basic ways. Um, And I would feel so much shame about it that I almost like couldn't even tell him what was going on. And for him to be like, yeah, this is just what's hard for you. You know, what's hard for me is a different thing. Um, allowed so much permission to be like, okay, cooking dinner once a week is just really, really hard for me. And if I can stop beating myself up for that, maybe I can like breathe for a few minutes and then like do the next step in the recipe. Mm, I think that's so sweet. And yeah, what I'm hearing you name is this importance of acceptance that we all are just wherever we are. And when we can have people in our lives that just accept that we're imperfect and that we are prioritizing different things and that we're seeing and responding in different ways. And we know that there's support and there's love and there's grace. Things just open and things relax and things move more into flow in my experience. And it sounds like that's what you were naming. 
So on this podcast, now we can, of course, edit this out if you guys decide you're not comfortable. I also really want to invite couples to share whatever feels comfortable to share about your experience of sexuality as your instinctual type. So if you guys are willing to go there, I think this is an area that we don't talk about publicly, and yet we all have this part of our lives. And my hope is that we can start to see ourselves and talk about some things. And I just want people to be as vulnerable as they're willing to be. And Karen, I know you have a professional platform, which is why you're coming on with your name. And there will be couples that we interview that we want their story and they prefer not to share their names. But I'm just going to go ahead and dive into this zone and see what emerges if you're willing. Sure. Yeah, definitely part of my practice to to find the edges and be open and, and public about certain things that I might be uncomfortable with. Yeah, and remembering that this is, of course, we all love salacious details and anything you want to share, but really this is for the growth and the work. And, and it is because this is a really tender area that we can't always talk about. So whatever it is that you want to share, the hope is that other people listening to this podcast will see aspects of shared humanity and shared reality and just see how people are working with wherever they're at. Is that just an open question or did you want to start somewhere in particular? Yeah, and you can share a celebration. What is it that you love about what your instinctual stacks bring? Or it could be a morning. What is something that's like an edge? So whatever, you guys are about to get married. I'm assuming there's a lot of celebration. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I don't want to make that assumption. You know, there's, we're all at different stages of this journey. And I just want to see what, what comes up for you as you think about that. And remembering we can edit. <laughs> so, you know, we can always uh, decide what we're more, what we're comfortable sharing at the end of the episode. Are you having thoughts? Do you want me to start? Why, why don't you start and uh, I will I will chime in. Yeah, well, it was interesting at the beginning of our relationship. So we met through a friend and it was kind of a whole happenstance and we were friends um, and then kind of progressed from there and ended up where Sebastian was in not a great living situation. So he would just spend the weekend at, at my house with my roommates pretty much every weekend. And that's the beginning. So we actually didn't have to do the whole dance of courting and texting and social whatever, um, which worked really well for us because physically we just immediately meshed well. Um, and I, I remember we slept next to each other before anything had happened. And I was like, best sleep of my life, like so great to cuddle <laughs> platonically. My friends are like, that's not a thing. Um, but then when we did start, you know, having sex and stuff, like we would, we were just, it was so beautiful. Like it was really intimate. I feel like um, we'd wake up in the middle of the night. Like we were just like, this, it feels good. And I actually had never had an orgasm or I had before Sebastian, but I was like 22 before I did. And so talk about the inner kind of control stuff really messy on the outside and not really having like a channel to release that. And I see now like, oh my gosh, so much pent up, <laughs> like the pursuit and the hook and the whatever, and never getting the physical release. And I think Sebastian's very in his body and um, very like sexually interested. 
And for me, so much of it was a mental thing where I would be like excited about the idea of it and like the connection and the, and the play and the, the, like just this idea that someone wanted to like have sex with me. And then when the physical part came in and he is so persistent and loving and like wonderful um, in terms of knowing my body and like helping me want to know my body and not be ashamed of anything about my body, like just getting to share that release together. I don't know. It's just been amazing. And we still like, you know, we've been together eight plus years and about to get married. And we just like, physically we have chemistry as long as I can remember to drop down into my body and he will reflect back when I, he can tell immediately what I'm feeling. Like if I'm feeling something, but before I know he'll, he'll, he's reading me so well from his threeness and his self-presentness. And he'll be like, you're not in your body. Where are you? And then he'll like bring me back. And that has made such a huge difference in like my ability to release a lot of things and also our feeling so supported by him and kind of like finding that foundation. And I think that sexuality for men and women can be really different. I think that most men masturbate when they hit their teenage years. I think that women have a very different relationship with masturbation. And when you said that orgasm was something that you discovered, had you discovered that on your own before being with Sebastian? Or was it really when in your partnership with him that you landed on that experience? I ha- I did discover it on my own before him, but not that long before. It was probably like nine months before we um, got together, and so it was still relatively new for me. And I think when when we did get together, and he was so patient and so willing to like, you know, stick with it and like let it go if it wasn't going to happen, and all of the like just to meet me in that, it really again reduced that shame, reduced. Um, my insecurity about kind of being this like seemingly really sexual person and yet having this disconnect between that and my body. Um, And so it was really like, it wasn't until we were together that I was was, like consistently uh, able to orgasm. And had you had sexual experiences before Sebastian with other people? She had a lot more than I had. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And yeah, yeah Karen, Karen uh, took my virginity. So I, I mean, I'd had sexual experiences with other people, but um, not a penetrative sex. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm just, you know, very interested in even how we hold sexuality based on stack, you know, when um, sexual social versus sexual self-pres and, you know, finding our body. And I guess one of the things I'm also curious about, because you did have sexual experiences, but hadn't had an orgasm with a man, did you fake it? That's a good question. I kind of didn't, for me, and like watching movies and stuff, I, it was, I was like, I want to talk while we're hooking up. Like, I want, like, I want you to be, make me laugh. And I want this to be clever and like interesting. And I want the whole experience to be like really fun. And it was too vulnerable for me to actually slow down enough to even name it. And it's like, I'm sure I made sounds and whatever, but I wasn't even consciously like, I'm going to tell you or fake this. Like, I was kind of like, what, maybe that's a little bit of the like, 
prowess of the sexual I'm like whatever you had a great time and like this is fun or it wasn't and I don't care um but it I it wasn't like a thing for me whether I faked it or not so it was more when you were with men that you were less connected to in a more casual way with Sebastian it was more like you just wanted it to be kind of a nice time and there wasn't necessarily that deep connection that resulted in physical release and a more spiritual transcendence is the way it sounded like it evolved with you and Sebastian. I think I was, I was afraid of orgasming because I hadn't, I didn't know what it was and I didn't even. There's some control stuff too underneath it of like knowing that it's, it might sort of overwhelm you. It might be too much and you won't be able to handle it. And so like kind of clamping down or having some control around that and fear around it. Yeah. So really um, wanting safety before you could go there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like with him, you know, first of all, I knew he wasn't that experienced. So I was, wasn't trying to live up to the, the competition thing wasn't as there, which was helpful. And there's also a thing, I think because I have this energy, but I also am aware of the social and I, I didn't, if I, I didn't want to do anything that weird with anybody who might tell people about it. Um, there like was a weird that, orgasm face or weird orgasm exactly. noises. Or, yeah, like I wouldn't want to actually let go, actually show my full, you know, right. animal self in a way that was unflattering, unattractive, got made fun of. Like there's a real sensitivity around that. And with him, it's funny that we're talking on a podcast now, it's public, but (laughs) you know, eight years ago with him, he's a vault. He's so private. He's so caring. He doesn't, he's not gossiping with friends or anything like that. And there was a safety there and this just desire to connect that I had had an ex-boyfriend who I mean, knew and wanted to help me and encourage me to touch myself and to like do all this stuff. But there was so much things there was like, there was other stuff going on in that relationship that I couldn't get there. And with Sebastian, it was just flowed and the patience and the feeling like he was, you know, this three persistence. It's like, what do we need to do? We'll do it. Like, I remember you like going down on me for like, two hours once or something just because you're like willing and I was eventually had to be like I don't think it's gonna happen this was this is lovely and and it's not gonna happen today and like also learning that that was okay was a big deal absolutely yeah for sure Sebastian I'd love to hear your experience of being self-pres dominant and how you experience your sexuality I mean, I think I've always felt like I'm a pretty sexual person and connected to my sexuality, but it's something that I'm definitely not external with at all. You know, whether that's flirting with other people really, or like putting that those vibes out with, but I think like when I'm with someone that I I trust and have intimacy, intimacy with my sexuality, you know, really comes out and it's something I, I really enjoy um, connecting with. Yeah. And is it true that you had masturbated before you met Karen? Oh, yes. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to be very curious. Like I'm asking this question because this is another area in which we'll probably find more women who didn't find their way to that than men. And I'm also very curious to hear if there are men that have a different relationship to that. I just think that these are all aspects of our humanity that 
are really interesting to discover. And I know where, um, yeah, Karen, go ahead. What were you going to say? Oh, well, it's also interesting. Like neither of us grew up in religious environments. And I know that that can come across. I remember in probably late middle school, maybe early high school, finding a booklet that was like, everyone masturbates. And if you say you don't, you, you still do, or like, it's normal, it's healthy, you know, kind of, that was, there was some messaging around that. And I still didn't understand my body. I didn't, I want, I needed that external. Um, I like wanted to smell, you know, like men's deodorant or like watch a sexy movie or like something. And I just, I just didn't feel like I could do that myself. Whereas, you know, Sebastian feels really comfortable in his body, which is, I know wasn't always the case, but it was since I've known him and this almost stereotypical, like he's ready to go. Like if I, it's funny to watch us do the dance of initiation because he likes when I initiate, um, but I'll forget about my bodily need for sex because it's more about like, surprise me or like you know when he does like sweet things and engages his silliness there's like spark there and so it's been interesting even recently having like different dynamics or like naming like I want you to say this to me or I want you to talk more or like whatever and to watch when we're comfortable enough to like try on a different thing. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing, guys. That it's really brave. And I just want to name that you're the first ones on this podcast. So as other people are listening, we're just sort of modeling like the kinds of conversations that we want to have. So I have a lot of gratitude. And I know that Sebastian has a call soon. And so we're going to start wrapping this up. But the last question that I wanted to ask you guys is, as you are about to embark on the rest of your lives together, knowing your type structure, knowing your stacks, what in your blind spot do you really want to try to remember either type structure or instinctual stack that is going to help keep your relationship healthy, connected, alive, vibrant? And you can either comment from your yeah, I think comment from your own space. Like, what do you want to remember and what do you want to hold on to? And what are you afraid could happen if you don't? What do you want to remember? I think for myself, you know, it's really not being afraid of and engaging with, um, you know, creating more fun and spark and um, spiciness, I think, in our relationship, sort of doing things because they're fun and spontaneous and whatever, and not because they're practical and they need to happen and et cetera, et cetera. Um, And I think when I do engage in those things, like we have a really great time and it feels like the relationship is pulled more into balance and it it feels really good. Um, So that's kind of my edge of growth, I think. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is that you don't want to be boring. You want to keep Karen engaged and excited and curious. And so remembering your access to play and continuing to just maybe do a little check-in with yourself. Like, did I do something spontaneous, fun, and playful with Karen this week or today or whatever that looks like? Is that landing? Yeah. And I, I also benefit from it too. You know, there's part of me that doesn't believe I'm going to benefit because the self-preservation is, is yeah, much it's a waste strong, of time. strongly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but when I do engage with it, it's like, oh, this is fun. And I feel more fulfilled as a person. Mm, that's sweet. Thank you. Karen? Yeah. I mean, to 
<laughs> it's just amazing to me how connected we are because as soon as either of us goes a little more toward the middle, it like frees up the other one to to take on the other energy. So I also find if when I am okay with the day-to-day, with taking care of my body, taking care of myself, doing things without being asked, like taking an interest in um, the house and, you know, these pieces, I can feel that free up energy in him. And I also feel better in myself. You know, like you're saying, it's like not, I can maybe could talk myself into it because of him, but it's such a benefit to me. And I think the biggest piece for me with him, and this might be more of like him being a heart type um, and, and a, just a three, he can feel it when I'm not able to attend to him in the way that he needs. And that breaks my heart. When you say like, what are you afraid of if I don't do it? When I'm not present, when I'm not taking care of myself physically and finding ways to discharge and energy and to like come back into that grounding, I I can I can tell more now. I mean, we we can't go more than a couple of days without naming it at this point because we've learned to have the hard conversations. But it's so painful to me to have him feel that I'm not with him because and learning especially more about the Enneagram, like the threes always break my heart because they're not seeking attention for nothing. Like there's a real wound there. And to know that I just by show by actually showing up and by really being there when I'm with him can do something that helps him feel seen and feel valued. Like that's a big deal. And I think he told me early on in my social work training, he was like, when you dissociate or when you make me parent you, that's my trauma. And I was like, whoa, you know, they say the sexual instinct is kind of self-obsessed outward, but it's still self-obsessed. I'm like trying to get something and to hear him be like, that is, that is re-traumatizing to me. I was just like, well, I really need to, um, yeah show up. Like I need to not take it lightly that we're in this together. And I need to like be here with you as much as I can. And I felt the healing from that. You know, I'm so touched to hear you say that. Um, I'm a three who was married to a nine and has subsequently dated two nines that have been very important to me. And yeah, the place that we get stuck is when I lose my nine is when, you know, I'm not feeling seen or heard and I can feel alone. So knowing that you already are connected to how important that is and that you have such a deep commitment to that just really warms my heart because I know that in the three, nine couple, we can just want to keep things easy, breezy and harmonious. And it can be easy not to name these things. So when we invite ourselves into the discomfort as a three, nine couple and can stay connected to our heart, connected to our bodies, I just think it's such a beautiful pair. And I wish you guys all the best and so much gratitude for being my first interview and and doing this with me. Thank you so much. I was joking. This is our marriage counseling. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you guys. And yeah, offline, always love talking about the three nine dynamics. So (laughs) good luck in everything. And uh, thank you. Uh, We'll see everybody next week. 
Oh, so that was really, really fun. And once again, I just really want to express gratitude for how brave Karen and Sebastian were to be my first couple interviewed and being so open to so many different questions. And I just have some thoughts and reflections after playing this interview back. And what I want to highlight is that I really want to celebrate that they've learned how to have hard conversations. I've had three serious relationships with point nines as a three myself. And I would say that that's what we've struggled with the most. The nine wants to dissociate and I'm out from them. And the three wants to kind of skate over it and keep it a little more easy breezy and keep things moving. So I definitely think that communication in the three nine couple is where problems can arise. So wonderful to hear that Karen and Sebastian, who actually got married the same weekend that this podcast is released. So what a wonderful way to see such a wise couple embarking on their journey. And some of the things that I was listening to, uh, I've mentioned that I really enjoy talking about Myers-Briggs and how it interfaces with the Enneagram. And while I was listening to the interview, I just want to name that I personally was resonating more with Karen's experience in some ways. And I think it's because she's an ENFP and Sebastian is an INTJ. And I don't for a minute think that I'm a nine or that Karen's a three. There's definitely an energetic difference between how we carry ourselves and how we live our lives. But I wanted to just name that a few of the things Karen said uh, made me wonder if that sexual social that's at the top of her stack could be potentially flipped. And this is a podcast where we really want to explore whatever it is that we think we're knowing about ourselves and invite ourselves to just take another look. And it's very important to me that I do not come across as saying, you are this or you're not that. But as I have been listening to all the different teachers in the instinctual field, there's a few things that I'm picking up on that I'm throwing out to listeners that they can observe. And if you happen to feel like you have an expertise in the instinctual drives, I definitely would love to hear from you. Please email me at contact at enneagramblindspots.com. And this is also in the show notes. So one of the things that we've often said when we're talking about the instinctual drives is what are you first having your attention drawn to when you go into a party? And this has become a little bit of a meme thing when we're talking about the instincts. And we heard Karen talk about how she wondered if she was SX because she walks into the party and she's initially looking for the juice, whereas Sebastian is hanging back a little bit and not quite as exuberant. And personally, I'm wondering if that's because Karen's an ENFP, because I am pretty convinced that I am self-preservation dominant and sexual blind. And yet as an ENFP, my experience of being in a party is very similar to Karen's. And I think what you might be sensing between my energy and Sebastian's is that he's an introvert, he has a four wing, 
as opposed to the fact that I'm an extrovert with a two wing. And he also has two withdrawn fixes with five and three. And I have another assertive fix with seven and one of the dependent fixes with one. So energetically, I'm wondering if that might have something to do with this whole, how do I show up at a party thing? So I'm going to let everybody think about that. I also think that it's interesting that Karen says that she's a little bit more out there and that Sebastian has a little more tact at parties. Um, I also think that this may be the ITJ of the Myers-Briggs Briggs providing more um, external social boundaries than somebody who's an EFP would have. Um, I also want to name that Karen's feeling of being unattractive and yet very fixated on attractions to other boys is also very much my experience, even though I'm identifying as self-preservation dominant. Um, the one thing that she also said was, once you see me, I'll be whatever you want. And she was labeling that as sexual instinct. And I'm wondering if that might be more of an attachment type thing, which both Karen and I are as threes and nines. I think that sixes have a little bit more of that anti-authoritarian, so it may not look quite the same. But I think that both threes and nines as attachment types definitely will flex in order to achieve the attachment and don't start showing more of their true selves until they're a little bit more comfortable. She also mentioned that there was that deep fear of someone not wanting to be drawn to me. I also experienced that. And I'm just wondering once again, is this attachment, uh, is this attachment stuff? as opposed to true sexual instinct, because that being drawn to me can be both sexual and social. And I know that um, both of those feel alive to me as an attachment type. The other thing that I heard Karen say was that if I'm socially palatable, maybe people will be more likely to desire me. So this sounded like she may be using her social instinct to meet the sexual needs. So which one's on top? Still not exactly clear, but just wanted to name that it sounded like she was using social instinctual strategies to meet those sexual needs. I also wanted to mention how Sebastian talked away about the way that Karen will sometimes energetically penetrate him. And we were labeling this as sexual energy. But I just want to throw out there that that could be more the intensity and invasiveness that comes along with a two fix. And I'm just naming that because I have a two wing and I know that Karen has a two fix and people have thought she was a two before. So I'm just wondering if that's what Sebastian might've been picking up on instead of sexual dominant energy. I also heard Karen say that she thought people would like her because she's smart, athletic, funny, and that those are the things she wants to lead with when she was first um, courting men and ultimately found Sebastian. And once again, my impression of the sexual instinct is that it's more of just a vibe and an energy and not quite as much the portfolio that we put together. And once again, I can name this simply because I know that I also have a certain resume or portfolio that... I rely on to get the SX attraction that, um, of course, I'd love to have. So I'm throwing that into the mix for everybody to consider as well. And one of the things that I was so touched by when I asked Sebastian, 
you know, yeah, you don't love Karen for her pedigree. What I really saw is that Sebastian loves her for her essence. And um, even if Karen is not sexual dominant, he very much uh, senses her flavor, her energy, her tone, and his attachment and deep love and connection to that was just so obvious to me. So that was really sweet and beautiful. And just to, a reminder to any of us that feel like we're loved for the things we do or the pedigree that we put forward and realizing that the right person actually sees us and loves us for exactly what we are and exactly what we're not. I also wanted to mention that specifically when I asked Karen if she experienced jealousy, she said she did not. Most of the sexual dominant people that I talk to absolutely identify with jealousy pretty quickly. That's one of the ways that I've identified myself as being sexual blind is that I know I'm jealous, but I kind of shove it into my shadow and I often pretend that I'm not. So that was just a piece that I wanted to highlight. I definitely agree with Karen that I think that she's probably self-preservation blind. Some of the things that she mentioned is that self-preservation dominant, or I'm sorry, self-preservation blind people tend to be body blind sexually. And when they are talking about the sexual experience, it actually resides more maybe in the heart, in the mind. I'm not sure exactly where it resides, but it's not necessarily in the body. Self-preservation dominant people are often more sexual than sexual dominant people because it's not so much about the body. It's really more about chemistry, attraction, magnetism, transcendence. It, it has a different energy, which I'm still wrapping my brain around, um, my heart, my body around as a sexual blind person. One thing that Karen said, though, that I think we often see the sexual blind people say is that they forget about the bodily need for sex, whereas the self-preservation dominant people, I think, tend to be more connected to that. So the people who are self-preservation blind really benefit from dropping into the body and the one other uh, thing that I was noticing is that the sexual relationships that Karen had prior to finding Sebastian, when she talked about them, they really felt like they had a very light energy. Whereas when I've talked to sexual dominant people, it feels like all of their one-to-one -one connections have some more significant charge. So I'm not sure if it's that the point nine just doesn't manifest that charge the same way, but I have definitely um, experienced the intensity and the charge of the sexual nine online. And perhaps um, that's something that Sebastian and Karen are sharing. But when she was talking about those other relationships, I just wanted to mention that it had that lighter social sexual feel to me. So those were a few of my thoughts that I had. Um, I also was curious because I do think that physical touch is more common in sexual dominant and self-preservation self dominant people. In my experience, the social dominants tend to worry more about what other people might be thinking or seeing. So I'd be very interested in hearing from people who identify as social dominant. What is your relationship to PDA? How do you feel um, both making public displays of affection and how do you feel when you see others doing it? What is your reaction to that? 
The other thing I just thought I would highlight because the three nine couple is quite common. Um, threes just love being loved by nines. And the one thing that Sebastian said is because they don't have expectations around performance for us. As threes, we are so performance driven. And to be in the presence of a sweet nine that really is not connected to that whole performative aspect is just so freeing. So I wanted to name that we really saw that in this couple. And I also want to name that the nine loves being seen with the fancy three. It's uh, We talked about how Karen just thinks that Sebastian is so beautiful and so attractive and people are drawn to him. And there's something about that three flashiness that... Uh, I see that nines really enjoy as well. So what a great exploration. Um, I really am grateful that we're in a community where we can be so open and just continue to question and recognize that wherever we are in our journey, whatever it is that we are looking at and considering, it's all important for our growth. And I hope that you had some nuggets that you can take with you as you continue to explore wherever you're at with discovering your type and your stack and maybe even your Myers-Briggs. So until next time, thank you. If you enjoyed this, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and various Android platforms. If you leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, it helps a lot. If you have any questions you'd like addressed in a future episode, please email me at contact at enneagramblindspots.com. I also offer a wide variety of services at my practice while Essence MD, including typing services, Enneagram coaching, nonviolent communication training, and mindfulness trainings for working with stress, anxiety, and food cravings. Feel free to call my office at 847-850-8185 to schedule a free consultation.